So question number 22, looking at a biblical view of emotions. Uh, Use both Old and New Testaments in your answers. How can emotions be changed? So this is the real key. People will come in, and the way to say it is they may be emotionally down, and they want they want help in uh, changing there. There is there is no peace, and God promises peace to believers. There's no there's no joy, and so what do they need to do? What how do they need to to change? Uh, so here are some examples. Talked about uh, old and new. But first, let me give you just a statement that Jay Adams make. It says, sinful, sinful behavior leads to unpleasant emotional experiences. So he's stating that there's a cause and effect, that uh, sinful behavior has a way of leading to these down or unpleasant emotional experiences. Example, from uh, Cain's sinful uh, actions, you know, poor emotions followed. So if you uh, take some time and just work through Genesis 4 there, he, he brought a, a thoughtless offering uh, to God. Well, Abel made a wiser choice, made a generous offering. And God did not look with favor upon Cain's poor offering. Uh, and so that begins the spiral and emotional response from Cain was to become, as verse 5, became very angry about how he was, was treated there. And then Cain allowed his emotions to, to further control him. And it, it says that his countenance uh, fell. In other words, the, his unpleasant emotions increased. These emotions became so strong that they even dictated his extremely bad, heinous behavior. And he murdered his, his brother. You can just see how the, the spiraling, it was called the spiraling down. So in Cain's case and all other cases, this is the key that we're trying to get across and have us understand that unpleasant emotions flow from an unrighteous heart and actions. Now, that doesn't, this is over a long period of time. If you have had a death of someone that is close to you, you are going to naturally have unpleasant emotions, and that doesn't mean you're not responding rightly. Uh, but God has made a way for us as believers that even when we have had a great loss in life, and I don't know when the, the time is, whether it's, you know, some it's a month, some it's three months, some it's six months, some it might be a year after that. But if they, if upon that grief, more sadness is being added and they're just not able to get out of that, most likely they are not responding to that, that trial and that grief appropriately. So that doesn't mean that all unpleasant, we're not trying to say here that all unpleasant emotions are immediately uh, <clears throat> uh, sinful. You know, when we've been hurt, when something has happened to us that anger us, yes, there's going to be some unpleasant emotions. But this is a, when it's continued and it's characteristic of who we are. So let's look at Psalm 32 together. Let's open up the Word of God to that, that psalm. So, 
Psalm 32 also speaks of unpleasant emotions with David in verse 3. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Okay, he, was, he, was, he was groaning. He was, this was uh, something that he was uh, verbally ex- expressing. It was just uh, consuming him. But you can see in the beginning of this verse, the source of these emotions of David is sin and an inappropriate reaction to it. He, he, kept, he kept silent. He kept doing his sin and building sin upon sin. It wasn't that he uh, just was having an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba, but he had uh, her husband killed. And as time goes on, he, he kept silent about it. So it's a sad display of emotions which followed behavior. You know, talking about uh, Peter is when Peter denies Christ uh, three times. Uh, after the denial, scriptures say that he, Peter, went outside and he wept bitterly over his sin. So hopefully that weeping bitterly, that was the beginning of having a uh, godly sorrow that moved toward having a repentance. So scripture clearly indicates that emotions flow from behavior. So that's the key that they're trying to get across. So much of counseling is just feeling bad about life, person coming to you. Well, what do you do with their feeling bad about life? And often you will find that that feeling down, bad, depressed about life is because they're not responding to life appropriately. So it's not so much that you want to attack their feelings and get their feelings pumped up. What you want to do is see where is their behavior falling short of the Lord and working with behavior and then seeing those emotions change. So here, for the changing of emotions to occur, there must be behavior changing. Uh, A quote here, if nothing changes, nothing changes. Uh, It's pretty simplistic. And I might have might have told you about that that uh, this quote here. Uh, I used it. I used it once in a talk I gave, and uh, I'm not a big Facebook person, but I, I found it that someone picked it up from the talk and it went all over Facebook. Well, uh, actually, I saw the quote on the back of someone's bumper sticker. And it, it, it said Zen proverb, so that's where it came from. But I realized it's really actually very true. You know, nothing changes, nothing changes. And people think that just by coming to the counseling, something's going to happen. But the change has to happen in their life. And there's a quote here, the way of relief from these unpleasant emotions is not by attacking the emotions, but by changing the behavior. If emotions are disagreeable, that is a warning signal to our conscience that behavior is not pleasing to God. So there's steps of repentance. Godly sorrow, so after godly sorrow, write that verse, Second Corinthians 7.10. That's a key verse that talks about the difference between that there needs to be sorrow, and then just not sorrow for sorrow's sake, but a big difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Then there needs to be uh, confession, right there, Proverbs twenty-eight, thirteen. So whoever uh, conceals his sin will not prosper, but whoever 
uh, confesses and renounces, finds mercy. Very key. Then godly living. God wants us then to live. The godly confession is Proverbs 28.13. The godly sorrow is 2 Corinthians 7.10. And then, of course, uh, godly living. You could put down there uh, uh, 2 Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8. That's a verse that says, Exercise yourself toward godliness. Or physical exercise is of some value, but the exercise of godliness is of value for this life and the next. Even small acts of obedience in the Lord's direction will have a radical input on feelings, emotions, and so forth. Now looking at Psalm 32, back to that, looking at the last two verses, David states the moral of this emotional uh, story here. And Psalm 32, at the end, he says, Many are the woes of the wicked, okay? but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds those who trust in him. Many are the woes of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord. So, stating that there. The wicked have, as a minimum, they have sorrowful emotions. The righteous ones, or the upright in heart, are the ones with a heart and behavior turned toward pleasing God. And in these verses, a beautiful thing, it says, Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all of you who are upright in heart. So they're, they're glad, they rejoice, they shout for joy. Now, these are not beautiful emotional responses that need to be fabricated. Okay, I need to pump myself up to be uh, joyful. These are reactions and emotions and feelings that will begin to flow from righteous behavior. I've seen people who have been in, like I've said, it, it's sometimes hard for me to believe that some of the circumstances that people are having to live through, they can handle but I've been able to watch people live through some horrendous things. And as they live through them, and as their, their trust uh, is exercised in the Lord by making biblical responses, that even though their, their environment is very dark, that they start to have a joy inside them. They have a sense, even in this life, of well done, good and faithful a servant and a sense that God is with them. So the key here in this that they're looking for, and if you believe in it, and the warning to you is someone is down emotionally, you're going to love them, you want to help them. You're naturally going to focus on their emotions. But what's being said here is if you really want to help them, their emotions could greatly be caused by their behavior. And if you can look to see where might their behavior be lacking in pleasing the Lord, if you can make them a move there that they're in their home, in their work, in their private life, in their social, in their uh, sexual expression, is all of that moving in a way that's pleasing to the Lord, that will have a great impact on a person's emotions. Yeah.
All right. Good. Well, let's look at this, this number 23 here. This is, this is two sides of a coin in the terminating of a counseling case. Answer this for cases terminated because of spiritual change and growth and spiritual hardening, failure to comply. As I said, my two hardest times in counseling are the, are the first session because I don't know these people and we're going to talk about things that are pretty in-depth and I'm not one that likes to confront and uh, sometimes you have to do that so I know that this is going to happen here. And also, uh, usually I might have an idea how to start but I usually don't have any idea how I'm going to help this, this person. But to put one foot in front of the other, God uh, helps there. And then, uh, if it's going well, the second hardest time is finally bringing it to a close uh, and saying, well, you know, this has really been terrific watching the Lord work in your life and in my life and all, but we can't keep going on meeting like this, you know, that we all have other things to do in life. Now, I have found one thing that makes it a lot of fun to end is that uh, we usually... Well, we usually go out for dinner together at the end, and that brings it to a nice uh, social time. And it, then that, our hopefully, our relationship will continue, and it will continue at, at that that point. So, uh, and sometimes even during that, if we'll we'll talk about okay, now you know what idol the heart you're working on and things like that. We're just not going to uh, talk on just uh, superficial things. But that uh, that helps that last session be less be less uh, sad. So you, you want to come to an end. You hope that'll come to end because of growth reasons. And so here are there are four abilities that a counselee must possess before a a case should be ended on a positive note. So you want to talk to them maybe even three four sessions before. You, you know, they're making good change and so forth. You want to be talking to them three, four sessions before and explain to them, yes, we're going to be ending at the, after, at the end of this month here. Uh, but there, there are some things that I want to make sure that are in place that you're going to carry with you. So these are, and you go over these with them to see if they understand them. First, the counselee must be able to define the problem. Okay? What problem was initially brought them into counseling? Now, they might have, and this may be different than what they wrote on their, uh, their personal data inventory form, but what was it that really brought them, brought them to, the, to the counseling uh, here? And then second, the counseling must be able to articulate how a person changes and grows according to the put-off and put-on principle articulated there. They must be able to, you must have a sense that I fully, really understand about progressive sanctification and that a person person grows and if they're uh, not growing, that is a serious problem in a person's life uh, and that their cooperation with the Spirit is by the Spirit bringing to mind things they need to put off and things they need to put on. And then third, counselee must be able to share personally 
how they've changed during the counseling process to be more like Christ. Really be able to go over. Now, we've been together here, you know, for 10 sessions. So what would you say are ways that the Spirit has changed you, really made you more into His image so you're demonstrating, you know, His glory in your home, where you work, social relationships. And then finally, this is a key is that the counseling must be able to articulate their future plan for growth and godliness by God's power. I'll, I will actually go through with them. Okay? Now, uh, don't, don't, I tell them, don't say something to make me happy or what you, should, what you think is the uh, Christianity. Say what you're really going to do. Say, now, we know that you should be reading the Scripture every day. All right. how, how are you going to do that? And uh, they may come and say, well, I, I've got this reading plan. I went to the resource center and there's a reading plan here. And uh, the reading plan's laid out for how to read the Bible in a year. I can't do that. But it gives me, it gives me there uh, how I can read through the New Testament in a year. And so, all right, they've got that plan in place. And then uh, I ask them, all right, you want to be uh, reading uh, the Bible? How about uh, theological reading? How many, how many books do you want to read this year? And, you know, if they say two, three, six, you know, if they say 20 books, you, there's not, they're probably out of line here. That, that, that's not going to happen. And you don't want to set people up for failure. But work with them. And so often I'll work with, you know, to be able to read, you know, 50 pages in a week. If you read 50 pages in a book in a week, you will be knocking out uh, some books there. And that will be good good for you. And then uh, last thing is, all right, memorizing verses. You continue want to hide God's words in your heart. And as it says in Psalm 1, you know, you want to meditate on it because that's the person who is prosperous. In Psalm 1, they use the metaphor of a, of a tree that's prosperous, always giving fruit. But we want to have God's Word in our minds and our hearts so we can be continually thinking about it. And meditating is, what that means is, not that you're going to get some special knowledge about thinking hard on the verse. Meditating is just thinking about, how can I apply that verse to my life in the situation that I'm in? And so going over with them, all right, all right wh- how, many, how many verses do you think you can memorize in a month? Some people are great uh, at memorizing. It comes easy to them, and they've been with you now for a few months. They've gotten into the habit, and they've really come to appreciate it. But usually it's a, you know, a verse every two weeks. If you can get them to memorize a verse every two weeks, that, that is fantastic, just thinking about all the verses they'll have in a year. And even if they just do a verse a month, that's, that's 12 verses. In you know, five years, that's 60 verses where they, they hadn't memorized anything in the past that they would have. This is as long as they, they have a plan to continue to grow. And certainly you want them to continue to be in a, in a small group, that kind of setting. You want them to be you know, attending church, that kind of fellowshipping with other believers. So, uh, 
that is very important for their continuing because you don't yes it's been an intensive time in the counseling but that doesn't mean once counseling stops everything you've been doing also stops basically this last question deals with what spiritual disciplines are you going to help this person uh, continue to grow in a book that's very good on spiritual disciplines is uh, it's called spiritual disciplines for the christian life by don whitney you know that's very very helpful he's done an excellent excellent job uh, there. Now, there also come some negative reasons for terminating counseling. And uh, just a word of warning when you do this. Uh, sometimes it, it can get, just get so rough in the counseling. The person is argumentative, they don't do the homework, uh, other things, and you're almost looking forward to this. You're good riddance, you know, we don't have to do that. But be very, very patient with a person. Even uh, don't stay, uh, some people stay forever and others terminate too fast. You know, stay connected to the Lord, even as you work through these and we think about them. Usually stay a little bit longer than you you would want. We're often, but don't just stay forever. Sometimes when people stay forever, what it is, the counselor doesn't can't doesn't stop because they feel that it'll be a reflection on them as a counselor, and so they don't want it to to stop. They're always hoping that something will happen. But sometimes stopping actually is the best thing you can do for that counseling, and we'll see here. One reason to stop would be unbelief in the person and promises of God. Now, you are often going, I shouldn't say often, but you will regularly have someone come to you who is not a believer, who actually is very active in, in the church. And for me, um, this I have probably seen more people come to faith in Christ through the opportunity of counseling than all the other times I've shared the gospel uh, with people. Maybe God has used those seeds and, uh, that I don't know about, but it's in the intensive time of counseling when I've been able to share the gospel and watch people move from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light with even people who thought they were a believers. So just because a person isn't a believer to start with, then sharing the gospel with them. Now, some people, I, I will always ask in the very beginning, you know, I will use an open-ended question. Tell me about your spiritual journey. Okay, so during the first session, tell me about your spiritual journey. And I will even get from devoted believers, they will talk about church, they, and they may never, ever mention uh, Jesus. It's unbelievable that they don't. And then, so we'll go through that. And if there's time, I may ask, well, uh, tell me about how uh, Jesus, God and Jesus fit into the picture. And I, ha I had a recent one that even giving that prompt, I, I did not get and anything that they talked about uh, God, uh, them being a sinner, or Jesus was their Savior or Lord. It was it was a very warm that uh, oh I I trust God for everything and uh, I really wanted uh, uh, 
to have him as my friend. Uh, and, and this was a person who had, uh, uh, who was in uh, near 30, and they had been raised in the church their whole life, had gone to fine Christian schools, been discipled by different people, but uh, it, was not, it was not there. Um, and uh, it was interesting. Some people were observing me. And when we got done, they, and, and these were good, good people who were observing, and they were perfectly satisfied with that answer. But I was, I was not satisfied with it. So I'm going to let it ride now for a little bit, develop a relationship, and then uh, come back to it after a few sessions to really see where this person is. Now, uh, I'm going, there are many aspects in this person's behavior in life that do indicate that they're a believer. And it might have been a little intimidating their first time being there. So I'll, I'll give it, I'll give them certainly the benefit of the doubt. I'm not going to think, okay, they're not a believer. Uh, we'll move on assuming they're a believer. But until they can really articulate, confess with their mouth that Jesus is really Lord of their life. Uh, and their life is uh, indicating that. So you, you don't want to be uh, soft there on that. But if someone just is not a believer... Uh, we had a case. <clears throat> we we have cases that uh, a person just really is not a believer. They become very argumentative uh, about what we're doing here and so forth. Uh, uh, that then there's time to bring it to a close. Another one is the goal of biblical counseling is change for the glory of God. If they're not a believer, if they're an unbeliever. This goal makes no sense to them and to their life. So that's why, if they're not a believer, to just continue telling them to do these things for the glory of God, that isn't of any, any value uh, there. So you want to uh, really have the person become a believer so that counseling makes a difference. Okay. Now, it says here, this being the, the sad case, counseling should be uh, discontinued. But remember, please do not have the attitude of, wow, I'm glad that's over. Whether well, good riddance, you know, they're gone. I mean, I, actually, we should feel sad ourselves that oh, this person does not appear to be a person of the kingdom of God. And uh, if there's any way to leave the door open for them to come back to continuing the counseling later, try and do that. And we'll talk about that, continue back. Because another reason for ending is a repeated failure to engage in doing the homework. This is pretty common, <clears throat> is that, uh, uh, especially if someone who does not want to change, they start to realize, whoa, this is, uh, I've been to counseling before, and I liked coming and talking about my problems. Uh, this person lets me talk about my problems, but uh, they also don't let me talk for the full hour. You know, they they want to talk and they want to tell me to do things, and they send me home with a couple hours of homework to do. And I can see that uh, uh, I've got to carve out a couple hours, and I can see where this is this is leading, what the expectation is. So, Jay Adams says there may come a time when assignments are so often neglected two, three, or four weeks in a row in spite of all the attempts to understand why and to motivate the counselee so that the counselor must 
dismiss the counselee until he is prepared to work. And this is uh, he or she that this happens with. Um, in that set of videos that I talked about that you can observe, there's one by Amy Baker that she does with another. She's counseling a lady. And in those videos, it's a classic case of the person not doing the homework. And I just think Amy does a great job. After this has gone on a time or two, Amy just goes, really goes over her, like her whole week's schedule and what she's doing and so forth. And they really, you know, carve it out on this person's daytimer where they can do this time. And Amy agrees to it and the counselee agrees to it. You may have to do that as opposed to just yelling at them, you know, yelling inside but speaking nicely. You need to do your homework, but really working with them. You know, when you come home from work, tell me about your schedule. What are you doing there? You know, what, what are your Saturdays uh, like? And just showing them how it is possible to do that. Work with them. Uh, that. Now, if you have to dismiss them because of this, I always give them an expectation of resuming. And it just has to be a baby step. So let's say you've assigned to them reading the book Motives by Welch. We talked about that earlier in here. I will say something like this here. We're not going to schedule our next meeting because I see as we schedule that, you're not prepared for it. And what we do in that meeting uh, is so important on you doing the projects for growth. It's important. That's what we base our next meeting on. And then we build on that. I've asked you to do some work in the motives book for the last two times, and you haven't. So when you have worked through this motives book and you have written down three things here that you see that are applicable to you and are changes in your life, please email me and we'll set a time to get together because I would like to see these changes happen in your life for God's glory and for your good. So don't make it real hard. Don't make it that all these things you've assigned, you know, that maybe ha- you've maybe by then assigned five, six verses. You know, they've got to know all the verses. They have to have read all the books and make it a simple step. But something that would indicate that there's been an adjustment on the way they're handling uh, the homework. And leave the door open. Be full of grace and mercy uh, to them. And, and make it very, very clear what it is that you're, you're asking them to do. Okay, not you calling them to see if they're going to do it in four weeks. Let, you can put that on them. Uh, the next one, fair by the counselee to comply with the admonish, admonishings in the Word of God. You know, if no appropriate change is apparent around week six. <clears throat> this week six is it's really interesting how it, it works out. It, there's nowhere in Scripture you'll find that. We talk to people in counseling as you met about that half dozen times. Things, things become, start to become clear there. Uh, they may have a will that is just bent in a way contrary to God. Counseling should be discontinued until the counselee is desirous of, of change. You, you'll get things like this. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, they'll say statements, you know, uh, I'm good. You know, there's, there's nothing I need to repent about 
But we all have things we can repent about and do good. But they're just not being open to anything. And you, you have their spouse sitting there, and he or she just has a, a, an appropriate list of things that are not uh, uh, should be true of a believer uh, there. So this are these are some things here, and I. Uh, only one time did I have someone like this, but they they were working for a Christian organization, and it was really sad of what was going on in the home. Now, here's a warning. You know, a counselor should not terminate counseling too abruptly okay, due to the negative response of the counselee. They're, they're struggling. Life, is a, life can be very much of a mess to them. They might have gone to two, three secular counselors before they got to you, and you're sort of like a last-ditch effort and all. So by then, their life has become very hard. So it's going to take... They didn't get there overnight. They're not going to get out of there overnight either. So hang in there with them. But remember also, you know, we are not God's gift to this person, and we are learning ourselves. The problem may be with Ken, maybe with the counselor, or with both the counselor and the counselee. So Adam recommends that the counselor say something like this. Uh, and here a quote. You know, well, it's been six weeks since counseling began. The fact is that by now, under ordinary circumstances, you know, we should have approached or reached a turning point in the counseling. You know, something's wrong. Let's stop and analyze what's been happening to see whether the problem is with me, with you, or with both of us. So really being open, you know, about it, what's going on on there. Uh, So hopefully that will, you know, uh, be a catalyst to breaking up the logjam and the living waters can start to flow. Uh, Due to the counselor being open about the failure, may be on his part, the counselee may respond in a more open and, and deeper manner. It, there might be nothing that's really that you've done, but you have uh, just been so open and vulnerable, they're willing to take that step themselves. I say, well, wow, this guy, this guy really, really cares about me. And what they've been doing, they've really been these last six weeks sizing you up. You know, does this person really care about me? Now, do they really have wisdom to help me in this situation here because uh, I, I'm, I've, I've built a protective shell around myself and I'm not going to open up unless I know there's someone who's really going to hang in here and love me and help me through this because this is very, very painful for me if I start to really start telling the truth and being open uh, to change. So being open no, with all being out on the table, the counselor may see uh, the direction that each of them needs to take to change for the counselor's life to occur. So hopefully this will help you there in terminating the cases. But th- this is a good thing. If you've never seen it, uh, uh, even just to borrow it and to make a copy of it uh, from the book, The Christian Counselor's Manual, is 50 Failure Factors. And if you're a, a counselor and it's just not going very well, just to take some time and to pray through that list. Um, I've done that a number of times when it, things aren't going well. And the Spirit has brought to mind areas where I could make adjustments 
that would be helpful to uh, this person. So I'm thankful for uh, that list. And uh, I've done it. I've used it with uh, counselors. You know, I've had some of our season, when I was overseeing the counseling ministry here, some of our great seasoned counselors just having a tough counseling time. And they're saying, there's no way I'm going to do this again. I am, you know, I'm done. Uh, but even working through it with them and seeing where th- they could take a different step in helping. And the neat thing about if you're here with Grace Fellowship Church is that if you're struggling in a counseling situation, uh, we, we definitely do not want to slander. We do not want to gossip. But uh, when, they send the, when they sign the waiver sheet in the beginning, the waiver sheet clearly states that you have, the, as, a, as a counselor, you have the ability to speak to others about the situation that when you need help on what to do. And so often, uh, if you are counseling here and you are stuck, uh, yes, primarily rely on the Lord, but the Lord might be using someone else that's uh, done some counseling to help you. So give Bob Greenwood a call and he'll help you or someone else will sit down and see uh, where you are uh, in, the, in the situation. So, Good. All right, so there are some things uh, here about the terminating. Now, this is a, this is a, a key one <clears throat> that happens, and we're talking about casting out of demons in, in 24. Right. Is there any place in biblical counseling for casting out demons? In your answer, include your position on dynamic, the demonic activity in the post-apolic era and the biblical methodology for dealing with it. All right. So basically, what they're going to want to know here, the beginning part is biblical counseling is with believers. So, can a, a demon be controlling the believer to such an extent that basically they have no control over what they're doing. Some of you might be old enough to remember, was it Flip Wilson used to say, the devil made me do it, you know, for every, everything. And uh, uh, you, will, you, will get, you will get that response at times. And uh, wow, I mean, when someone says that, uh, who are you to say, well, it's not that, you know, that they're not. So you need a clear understanding what you think scriptures, what the Word of God says about demon behavior. Uh, and uh, I will tell you that uh, this has come up here at Grace Fellowship Church. We had, a, we had actually a, uh, a counselor here that was certified, and this person had moved to an understanding that... Uh, most of the uh, counselors, counselees that they were seeing were uh, demonically controlled. And so they were practicing a casting out of demons in most of their counseling. And so the elders had to deal with this, that this was, was, not, this was not our understanding of the of scriptures. And we asked this person to stop. And uh, that's all we did is just ask them to, to stop. 
that activity in their counseling and to, to follow the um, methodology that we thought was, was appropriate. And uh, this uh, theology had become such a part of this person's life that they weren't able to. So unfortunately, they had to, to leave our, our body, and, but it wasn't the elders that asked them to leave or wanted them to leave. We just had a very different view on whether a person could be so controlled uh, by a demon that, they, that there really was nothing they could do uh, to change the way they behaved until the demon was cast out. So, as you can see what happens here, it, it's like a Flip Wilson thing. If a demon, if there really is a demon inside me controlling me, uh, put off, put on, it doesn't matter. You know, the demon's going to make me still have this. So I'm going to have, uh, I have the, de- you know, you'll hear people say, they'll walk in counseling, I have the demon of jealousy, I have the demon of anger. And so basically, from, wh- from where they've gotten this theology, there isn't anything they can, they can do about it. Uh, so it's very important where you land on, on this. And certainly I will love and respect you wherever ever you are, but I have a certain opinion. Linda. The, the, of the person, like if they think that they're controlled by a demon, could that really be an idol of the heart? I mean, could the counselor kind of just kind of draw them into that? It probably will be. Eventually, their sin really is an idol of the heart. That's there. But uh, the key here is: do you be- whether you believe or don't believe that a demon can uh, indwell a believer? So let's work through this here. Um, Jay Adams says two reasons. He says there's no biblical reason to think that demonic possession or oppression can occur in the life of a Christian. Um, there's a reference there in the Christian Counselor's Manual. The first one is that uh, Satan's power is now restrained. Christ, Christ has come. Christ has died on the cross. And uh, uh, this has now... He has been rendered uh, powerless over uh, believers. And even his ability of, of roaming the earth and what he can do, this has been uh, curtailed. Number two, the simultaneous presence of the Holy Spirit who dwells within every true child of God and an unclean spirit. It's in, in, that's not possible for that to happen, at least from our understanding. Like I said, I will certainly... Love and respect you if you have a different understanding. But it's going to make your counseling, the way you understand why a person is sinning and what they can do because of that sin is radically different if, on what you believe here. So this is, this is foundational. So like Romans eight sixteen, it talks about you know, the Spirit himself speaks to your spirit inside you telling that you're a child of God. You're not going to have the Spirit himself indwelling you, telling you're a child of God, and also some other spirit, the demonic spirit living in there, and telling you you need to do this and that in these situations. The most compelling reason for the impossibility of demonic possession is that Jesus taught uh, this truth when accused by the scribes and being possessed by 
uh, Beelzebel. So he was accused of that. And he said, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he'll uh, plunder uh, this house. Jesus is saying that that the good that he's doing is because Satan's not active in him there. The Spirit of God was controlling Jesus' humanity. And so the same thing's happening with us in the same sense that Jesus, the Spirit of God is in us and is controlling us, who we are. And uh, certainly hope we're not grieving the Spirit, and so the Spirit is, is starting to have free reign in our lives. One of the things that uh, uh, if you want to do in your scriptures is to <clears throat> take your Bible as you're reading through the New Testament, and if you circle every time where Spirit is capitalized, referring to the third person of the Trinity, uh, you will actually make a mess of your Bible. He is mentioned all over the place uh, there. And it's, uh, uh, we, you can fall into an extreme of the spirit and demonic activity, or we can neglect him also. We do not want to be at either extreme. We want to have a biblical view of him. And from the very, very beginning, uh, uh, biblical counseling has had a high view of the Spirit's work in ministry. The first, the first book written by J. Adams, a, a competent to counsel, uh, either, the either the second or third chapter has an excellent, excellent chapter, is an excellent uh, talk on the Spirit's activity in counseling. Uh, and I know uh, that uh, there are certain uh, charismatic uh, seminaries because of J. Adams' chapter of what he wrote there in that book. They're still using uh, that because of this, the truth that it talks about in the Spirit's work in a person's, person's life. So um, thinking of, about the Spirit in our lives and in the person we're counseling. So in summary, if demonic possession or oppression cannot occur in the life of a Christian, then there is no place in biblical counseling for casting out of demons. What the elders had to do, I was serving with the elders at that time when we had to talk to that person. That was, it, was, it was very, very difficult to do, and certainly the outcome was an extremely sad outcome, even though we parted as, as friends and still... Uh, see each other and glad to do that. But uh, so, uh, also here, the demonic activity in the post episode era is limited but non existent. So, we also have to realize that uh, the, uh, the devil and demons, that it uh, uh, still can happen. He does have followers. Ephesians 2 speaks about this. You're really moving from the kingdom of darkness, which is the demonic kingdom, the kingdom of light, kingdom of Jesus. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions, sin, in which you used, used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So, yes, uh, he does have followers. And we're warned 
in First Peter 5. You know, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. They want to be very careful here. And then those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the, of the truth. These are verses, what I'm reading now, these are verses at the very end of Second Timothy. And it's talking about if you're teaching somebody and they're not responding to that teaching, continue to teach, but teach in a kind, gentle way. And the verse 26 goes on. And that they will come to their senses and escape from the, ta- the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. I remember... Um, it was one of the first classes when I went to seminary. And uh, 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 went in, it was Westminster Theological Seminary, and it was actually the seminary where Jay Adams was at when he wrote Competent to the Council. And uh, okay, we're all, <clears throat> you know, sophisticated seminarians here. And uh, a question that was asked of us, it was in a class called Doctrine of God, where Poistrous asked it. And he said, uh, do you really believe in the devil? And I want you to raise your hand. So I mean, not really. I mean, we were new, all new students. We didn't really know each other. I mean, it really put you on the spot. And uh, uh, it was amazing how hesitant uh, most of us were to raise our hand uh, there about uh, the possibility of this, and that it really is devil and demon. Uh, there, so you can go from one extreme uh, to the other, not really uh, understanding at all what's happening in the uh, spiritual uh, war world and uh, warfare of uh, spiritual. So we want to be open to that. So in here, in our day, much of the demonic activity is centered on making the world be alluring to us. So yes, uh, the, the spirit. Uh, excuse me, the, the devil uh, cannot get control of my thinking. But if the devil or one of his demons wants to take you down, they can have a way of putting things that are tempting in your path, making the world look a whole lot better and uh, drawing you in. And uh, you come to the point where there's a warning in in First John, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the craving of sinful men, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world here. He knows what entices our sinful nature to turn the world and away from loving God and others with our whole being. You know, uh, I remember, I think it was it was John MacArthur, and if I remember the story right, um, you know, he was he was greeting people after one of the services, and uh, uh, when he was greeting this lady, she uh, she had in her hand he shook her hand and put in her hand a note and an envelope, and when he opened the, the envelope later, he thought. Okay, what's she saying? There was a string of pearls in there and a phone number. Call me anytime. You know, you never know what will what the devil may do to try and take you down. And there's been a lot of Christian leaders that have been taken down in those ways.
So, uh, so fortunately, God has given a biblical methodology to deal with demonic activity, so that we can have victory. And you see here, the First Peter verse. It's resist him. It's interesting. It, a lot of it is resisting. It's not that you got to be careful of going out there and and, and just thinking you're going to. You know, just defeat this devil. That's that's in the Lord's hand to do that, and where the Lord has decided. But we can resist. And then the Ephesians six, you know, all that putting on the spiritual armor. We have a standing uh, there. And so, what you're one to do is help your counselee see and implement God's plan for His glory and His good by His power. We can stand firm. We can resist. And unfortunately. The end of the story in Revelation 12 is told for us. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. The Lord has overcome the devil. So if someone is, really feels like they're really being you know, uh, just bombarded by a demon, uh, and I'll ha- help them focus on the Lord's death for them, help them, help them focus on that they are a child of God, help them focus on living their life, even in the smallest of details, according to the, to the Word of God, and help them realize that, yes, we certainly appreciate the days God has given us here, but most importantly, we don't live for the, the good benefits God gives us. We're living to glorify Him. And so, um, work hard on this, wrestle, really see where you come down. You can see where, where I am, and uh, for me, I have a, have a clear conscience, but that doesn't mean that I, I fully understand it and I have it right. But uh, it will make a difference in your counseling where you decide the demonic activity and the extent of that can happen. I'll say one other word, too, is that um, um, about this here. It's, it's God who is omniscient, who knows everything. It's God who is all-powerful. It is, it is God who, that can be present everywhere. The the devil, demons, they are fallen angels. They do not have these abilities. All right. A, uh, a, a demon uh, cannot know what you are thinking. God can know what you're thinking. Jesus knew what the Pharisees were thinking when he told the paralytic, you know, your sins are forgiven. He knows those things. The devil is the, cannot read our mind. The devil cannot put thoughts into our mind. He, he may know by our own past activities, you know, what might entice us. Uh, even Google knows what might entice us from past activities of websites we've gone on, and know they'll put advertisements on there. Or if we've ventured into sites that are are uh, sexual, they'll have, those sites will come up on us. So certainly the devil has some sense of what we're doing, but it's, he is not or cannot be in our mind. 
So that's one thing, is don't give the devil the same powers that you give to God in that area. That's a trap that evangelicals do fall fall into. Uh, and then the, the other thing I want to warn you about is never, ever think that you are such an insignificant part in the kingdom of God that he might, he'll never send a, a demon to try and take you down. You know, if you are a child of God, you are extremely, extremely significant. And so never be casual about it. Oh, he'll never bother me. Always be alert to the prowling around and resist and put that full armor on the faith and righteousness, salvation, and, you know, all and carry that word of God in your mind and heart to be able to, to resist there. This is, uh, this is warfare that we are, are in there.